Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this month's episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. My name is Spencer Sample, and I'm one of the PGY3 residents in the McMaster Emergency Medicine Program. Today, I'm joined by Drs. Aline Pardin, Kelly Van Diepen, and Frank Battaglia, and we'll be talking to you about our program and some of the information that you might want to know if you're a med student applying. The program information was also released on the CARMS website recently. If you want to check that out, that would be great. So, Aline, Kelly, and Frank, can you just introduce yourselves for us? Sure. So, uh, I'm Aline. I'm the program director for the Royal College of Emergency Medicine program. Uh, I graduated from the program in 2009, and I became the program director in 2014. So I'm Kelly. I'm the assistant program director for the Royal College Emergency Medicine program. I graduated in 2015, and I've been the APD since uh, 2016. And my name's Frank. I'm a first-year emergency medicine resident, and uh, excited to be here. Thank you all for coming in. This will be a great group of people to talk about some of the things about our program. I'll just start with the first question. What are some aspects of the program that you want to highlight to the applying med students? Liam, if it's okay with you, I'm going to steal that question. Yeah, go for it. So my bias is that uh, I think everything's good. Uh, Obviously, that's my bias. But two things I do want to highlight are, one, our boot camps that we've introduced and integrated over the last uh, couple of years. This is designated curriculum that we've created along with residents and faculty to help every resident with a transition kind of throughout the multiple stages of residency. So transitioning from medical student to being a resident, a junior resident to a senior resident, and then transition to practice. So it might be in PGY1 where you're doing boot camps to help with common presentations and complaints that you see in the emergency department and on the wards. And that would be a combination of didactic and sim uh, education and teaching that you get to transitioning to being a senior. So learning more about flow management, consultation, teaching learners on shift, and then transition to practice issues that are important. So things like finances and uh, signing contracts, uh, et cetera. The second part that I think is really, I think one of the most important components of the program in my eyes is that a lot of our curriculum is resident driven with staff input and oversight. So for example, when we underwent a curriculum overhaul in in anticipation of CBD, this was a resident driven project by one of our own, Dr. Alex Chorley, our simulation curriculum, also resident driven project by Dr. Kyla Kaners and Dr. Donica Orlick. We have resident wellness initiatives that have been spearheaded uh, largely by resident groups across different PGY years, have Indigenous cultural competencies that uh, were developed by Dr. Jill Roberge, and then new equity and diversity ideas and integration uh, in our curriculum that are being created by uh, our current group of residents and a great group at that. Yeah, just to add to that, I think that, you know, our, our resident group is amazing. 
so you know, I'm sh- I'm not sure we tell them often enough, but you know, we have a we have a great group of residents. They're keen, they're motivated, they're collegial, they work well together. A lot of times, as Kelly has pointed out, a lot of our new endeavors have come from resident ideas that have been brought forward, and we're certainly very open to that. A lot of our residents, when they come forward with an idea, have come with. I have this idea and I want to do this to help make it better or help make the program better. And we're usually more than happy to sort of help them develop those ideas. You know, Hamilton is a, is a great city, you know, in, in addition, we have, you know, four big teaching hospitals that have a great pathology. There's great education. We have a large catchment area um, that provides the full depth and breadth of emergency medicine. So I think that, you know, anyone who comes here will have a, will have a great clinical experience. I will also though, in fairness to everybody say that, you know, if you, if you go to, if you have emergency medicine training in Canada, um, any of the emergency medicine programs will get you a world-class emergency medicine education. And I think that's certainly true in Hamilton. And then maybe just to add on, lastly, I would say that while the uh, emergency medicine training you get across Canada may be excellent, one of the things that makes McMaster's program so excellent and probably one of the top is just the amazing administration support that we get from from our senior residents, from our associate and uh, program directors, uh, from the administration who really, really like go to bat for you, make sure that your learning's first, make sure that your safety and wellness is priority and service after that. So they really care for you. They really care for you to excel. Um, and that makes all the difference in such a challenging residency, having such amazing supports, amazing people who want you to succeed and see you as people and treat you with respect. Thank you everyone for those answers. I, I really agree with what Aleem and Kelly were saying about the program being driven by the residents. And I think that's really important for people to realize. And I'm glad that you two pointed that out. Uh, so Aleem, you're kind of alluding to Hamilton and the city. Does anyone want to just highlight some things that you'd want candidates to know about Hamilton itself? Sure. So I think uh, there's a number of things that you know people like about Hamilton. So Hamilton, despite having a bad reputation for a number of things, is actually significant advantages. Um, so you know, lots of outdoor activities in Hamilton. So waterfalls, hiking trails, biking trails. Uh, all sort of within fairly close proximity. We're about uh, 30 minutes from uh, Niagara Falls. And so certainly there's also lots of outdoor activities available sort of throughout the Niagara Peninsula that you have easy, ready access to within about a 30 minute drive of, uh, of Hamilton. Downtown, we have a great sort of food scene. There's lots of really great restaurants that we frequent a lot. Not so much during the pandemic, but certainly uh, when the pandemic wasn't going on, there was, there's lots of great restaurants downtown that we could go to. You have all of the all of the things that you would expect in a you know in a medium to large size city without sort of the major issues that you get in really large jam packed cities. One of the other advantages of uh, of Hamilton is is that we're relatively central, so it's fairly easy to get in your car and drive to anywhere in the, in the Niagara Peninsula. And it's very easy to jump on the GO train and go into Toronto if you want to you know, go to a show, you want to go to a restaurant in Toronto. Um, and it's it's literally a 60-minute train ride. You don't have to worry about parking. Um, and you can do all of those things and still live in Hamilton. Other things to think about in Hamilton, particularly if you're going to be here for five years, rent prices and housing prices are significantly lower than in larger cities. And so, you know, lots of lots of great advantages to a city like Hamilton. Yeah, those are some great points. I think the the only other thing I would add is there's kind of a place for everyone here. There's a place for people to live downtown. There's places for people to live with their families, that kind of thing. So there's kind of people in different stages of, of their lives. So one of the big questions, especially with this pandemic going on, is how does the program foster wellness? I can speak to, to that question. 
We do have a resident wellness curriculum and committee. This was also a resident-led project. And our job in this is providing, you know, dedicated academic time to this. So there's a wellness committee that decides what's important to them, what they want to learn about, what they want to do with that time and budget, and they create sessions and activities and we will protect uh, that time for them. So it's really residents deciding that's important. So that's more the, like the curriculum side of things, but I think the bigger component to wellness for me um, and the way I think Aleem and I view it or the way Aleem and I do view it is creating a culture of wellness. And this goes beyond academic time and curriculum. I really hope we make it clear to all residents that their health and well-being is paramount to us. So in coming into the program, we recognize that all the things you do and who you are outside of medicine make you you, help you find balance, make you a better doctor, friend, colleague. So if it's important to you, it's important to us. So if there's an important life event that you need to be able to uh, attend, we want to work with you. We'll work with your schedule, et cetera, to make that happen. You know, Unfortunately, if there's a family emergency that happens, we'll also work with you, um, whether it be needing time off, rearranging a schedule, uh, et cetera. Uh, if you're unwell, we want you to take time to get well. We don't want to foster a culture of presenteeism. So I think the cultural component is really important here and setting a tone for that. I also think we're lucky that we have a group of staff that are very devoted to sharing kind of their experiences with finding and refining um, balance in in medicine kind of throughout various transitions in life from residency to staff life and beyond. And then I do want to say, of course, in any academic training program, the work is important and our mandate is always going to be to train excellent consultant emergency medicine physicians, but we really want more than that. We want you to be happy and we value your life outside of medicine and what makes you you. And because of that, that makes you a valuable asset to our program. So that's kind of the cultural approach that I, I think I speak for both Aleem and myself in saying that we hope we make very clear and foster within the program. Yeah, just to add to, to Kelly's excellent answer is we do also try to allocate financial resources to our wellness curriculum so that there is there are funds for people to do things uh, within that. Uh, we have a resident retreat that is resident run uh, that we also provide some funding for so that the residents have some some money to be able to develop those that type of programming. You know, I will certainly, you know, I think uh, we are both uh, abundantly available. Um, you know, our residents call us or text us essentially at all hours. If it's in the morning, usually Kelly. If it's at night, usually me. You know, we're available to, you know, answer questions, help navigate problems. You know, we, we try to make ourselves, you know, as, as available as we can to make sure that the residents have got the support that they need uh, within the program. And, and again, the residents also drive a lot of the, their own wellness. So where they have, they run, you know, events for the residents together so that they can, they can all hang out as a group. Um, and uh, I think another component to it is, is that they, they know that they're always well supported, not only by the program, but also by each other. So there's a, a, a WhatsApp group that with all of the emerge residents, I'm not 100% sure if I'm supposed to know about it, but it's there. And so, you know, when there's a, one of the advantages of emergency medicine is there's always somebody awake. Um, and so you can text the group and someone will get back to you. And so you have a problem on the ward, you've got a question, you're not sure how to handle something. I, I know that that often goes out on the WhatsApp group and, you know, someone will be, uh, can be able to either help you like chat on the phone or by WhatsApp or can 
direct you to the appropriate resource, be it Kelly or I, or you know, go down to Emerge and ask the Emerge doc how they would manage it and that type of thing. So there's there's lots of help available in the program because we want people to be well supported. Yeah, I would uh, completely agree that culture of wellness that Kelly and Aleem are speaking about, like permeates from year five all the way down to year one. Um, it really has made a difference to our PGY1s uh, getting started. Uh, absolutely. Um, I think uh, one of the big things is just the idea of knowing the faculty is always there to support you. So it was like my first solo night on call on Gen Surge and I had a patient with a medical problem up on the ward and I went, walked down to the eMERGE and I was like, Kelly was there. I was like, Kelly, can I run something by you? Um, and she was great to help me sort through that. And it's just the nicest feeling to know that you're never alone, no matter what kind of challenge you're facing. Because that was so. there's always someone in the emergency department there to help you out. And then outside of work, the collegiality, especially I can really just speak to, for my cohort just because we've been trying our best to keep communicating in the middle of COVID. Um, we, our group is gung-ho, trying our best at the costume contest, winning the costume contests. Um, and then getting some of the wellness funds for that have been fantastic. We're already planning our Christmas skits right now and working on our script. Um, and we're doing a Secret Santa Mystery Moses uh, gift exchange amongst the first years too. So trying our best to build a community and culture within our years is amazing. And our program and has picked amazing residents to help foster that wellness as well. So it's excellent to be here. Yeah, I definitely agree with all of that. Those are all very real examples. And I can say as someone who's in my third year, all of those things have happened to me. I had the same thing where uh, I was on my first ICU call, went down to the eMERGE. Um, and all of the things that Kelly and Aleem were saying are, are, are real things. These aren't just things that, that we say and that we think are ideal for a program, but these are things that happen and I think it's just really important to reiterate that these are real things. And I've been through probably all of the ones that we've mentioned as well. So I think we've kind of alluded to some of these things, but maybe next we'll talk about how the program promotes bonding between residents. I mean, we've talked about the pumpkin carving costume contests, and we've talked about wellness events. I don't know, Frank, do you have any other specific examples of how you feel that the program's promoted bonding for you? I know it's particularly mm -hmm. hard for you with coming in in the middle of COVID, but. Uh, I feel a few of the things that we've done extremely well, even despite COVID, uh, have been our near peer mentoring program. So at the start of the year, first year residents are paired with second year mentors who you can bounce questions off of, who check in with you, who got us presents <laughs> and uh, bought us lunch and welcomed us to the program. And that I think has been great because it's someone directly there that you're able to just right away ask all your dumb questions too which is great and then we've also had a few of the other seniors and third year check in with us on each rotation letting us know what epas are most high yield and what to hit on like personal kind of action plans based upon their experiences which has been wonderful the ultrasound weekend it's a blast it's two full days of ultrasounding a, a magic and uh, it's a really nice time to bond with your uh, adjacent years. So for us, it was the first and second years, which is really nice to see them in person and get to interact and uh, get to know each other a little bit more and get to work with one another. So it's great. And those have been a lot of the big things that we've done in addition to classics like Academic Half Day, where you get to see all these faces and names and interact in a virtual setting right now with COVID. But they've done a really, really great job of integrating us within our own year, but also vertically with the other years too. So now... I feel like I can talk to most people from years one to year five without any concern just because of 
how well I've got to know them, even despite the challenges that have been presented with COVID. I feel like this is like the easy button for us. I, I don't, I can't take any credit for this. Like our, our residents are so collegial and cohesive. Like honestly, it's like the Staples easy button <laughs> on our end. Like they, they all do an amazing job from PGY five to PGY one, making sure everybody feels welcome and heard. So. And I also think they know, like, I think that the advantage of, of this the way that it works is that the seniors know, you know, when something needs to be escalated to us. Right. And so they, you know, go off and, you know, give us a heads up if there's a problem, and, you know, let the juniors know that it's okay to call us, you know, when, uh, when they need to, so I think that's actually really helpful because the seniors will say, no, no, that's totally fine. You can call Liam anytime and he'll, you know, he'll help answer that question or help you navigate that problem. Yeah. I think for me, at least, all, I mean, all of the things that you've said, but I think when I compare our program to other programs out there, like at our school, at other schools, uh, there's some programs that are very close and they have maybe fewer residents than us, but there's also some programs that are bigger than us. And I feel like our program has a great balance of collegiality and bonding and everyone knows everyone. And I hope Frank, you feel the same way, but I feel like there's no levels of hierarchy within the program. And those are some things that I've witnessed in other programs. So not to compare ourselves to other programs, but I think we definitely have a very open level group of residents and we can all get along and we're all comfortable doing things together. Yeah. If you were to describe McMaster's emergency medicine program, it'd be like an open floor plan bungalow. You're on one floor, everyone's together. You can see straight across. You, you you see exactly what you get and it's very accessible. It's a, it's a really, really wonderful program for, especially from the PGY1 point of view. You feel very much absorbed into a great community. Thanks for that great analogy, Frank. Aleem, can you speak to some of the mentorship opportunities that the program provides for our residents? Uh, mentorship is this wonderfully elusive uh, thing that where, or, or, you know, in general, mentorship works really well when it develops organically. So, you you know, you uh, develop relationships with people that you um, have similar interests with and align with. Uh, in general, we think that having a single mentor is likely not the best solution, but having the that whole concept of a board of directors, right? So these this is the person you talk to about your career. This is the person you talk to about your academic aspirations. This is the person you talk to about life. This is the person you talk to about, uh, you know, your area of special interest. And so we do a number of things uh, to try and support that. So one, uh, all our new people are compared with a, a relatively recent grad from the program. Uh, we have to touch base with them a few times a year, mostly just to help them navigate starting in a new residency program. Really, it's, they're there as a support person if they have questions or they want uh, some details without, without having to, to ask anybody else. Although, you know, it's unclear how much it's needed, but certainly we thought it would be a good, good thing to do, particularly in the middle of a pandemic where people didn't necessarily have access to the rest of the resident group as early on as the mm. residents did. The second thing that we do is, is we have interest-based groups that uh, meet sort of at varying levels of frequency, depending on the group. We have a medical education interest group. We have a peds emerge interest group. We have a trauma interest group. We have a leadership and administration interest group. So these groups are, are very resident-driven, but there's a number of faculty associated with each one. Uh, and we, we meet and it provides you with a forum where you can talk to people who share uh, areas of interest and you can join up with as many or as few as you like. So if when you start PGY1, you're interested in everything, which lots of PGY1s are, uh, you can join them all. And then sort of as you sort of narrow your focus down, you can sort of narrow that down. As with most things right now, our ability to meet uh, is somewhat limited because of 
you know, the pandemic, but, uh, but certainly, you know, the faculty are, are still quite available and accessible if people have questions or want to talk about things. That's a great answer. I think, I mean, there, there are the two different routes that so we definitely have the assigned uh, mentors, but mentorship kind of just happens over time. So yeah, I mean, that's definitely happened with me. Frank, do you feel like you've gotten opportunities like that with residents or faculty as well? I feel like one of the nice things about mentorship and the way it's happened here is that although there's been assigned mentors who some of them are similar to your interests or to your goals, others are just people who are good to know from the beginning, like just your seniors, they really are excellent connectors to people who you may be looking more towards uh, working with, or they might have people in mind who might want to work on that specific project you have in mind. And so kind of through these pre-established mentorship roles, it really helps you to build those more organic uh, mentorship relationships that you're uh, speaking about. And I, I, I have no, I have no need for more mentorship. I still keep getting connected to more people as I progress through my PGY one year. And so I feel like the program here has done a really good job about setting you up with a basic approach to mentorship. And it's up to you and up to your interests to kind of grow that, but your mentors will help you find the people you need to, to succeed here. Great. Thanks for that answer. So one other thing that I wanted to talk about was how receptive the program is to resident feedback. Uh, so just over the last couple of years, I really noticed how when the residents have an issue or not even an issue, but a suggestion for improvement, the program is very open to making those changes. One example of that being changing the resident shifts and the staff shifts as well to kind of line up a little bit more at one of the hospital sites that we have. Uh, residents just found that switching between multiple staff over a shift wasn't really the greatest for learning. And this was brought to the program and we had several kind of meetings about it and discussed how we could approach this. And in the end, the program basically did what we wanted in terms of matching our shifts with the staff shifts. And everything's gone very well with that so far. But I think this is just a really good example of how the program's willing to adjust to certain suggestions that we may have, of course, within reason. But Kelly and Aline for sure look out for our best interests and listen to any of the suggestions that we that we have. So I think we're nearing the end of our segment. I was just hoping that one of you could give some general advice for people that are interested in applying to our program. So for, for people who are applying to the program, I think it's really important that everyone knows that it's uh, the programs do recognize the fact that this year is not like other years. We recognize that you will not have had access to electives on the same basis that you have in other years. Uh, you won't necessarily have access to you know the number and variety of electives that you've had previously, and that's okay. We also recognize that this is a bit of a new and shifting model of the way that interviews are going to look. And so we would encourage you that if you have further questions to reach out to our chief residents, to reach out to program leadership, uh, both of the email addresses are on our terms description. And we're, we're happy to chat with you about the program in more detail if you have questions. The sort of general advice I have around applying, I think still applies. It's, uh, you know, make sure that you, you answer the questions that we, that we put in for your personal statements. Make sure that you, uh, you're, you are as complete as possible with your CV and, uh, and yeah, make sure you apply broadly as, as broadly as you can for Emerge. Emerge, as everyone knows, is a relatively competitive program and certainly our program is not, is not any different, but I think that, you know, we want you to be able to put your best foot forward. And so that's usually the advice that we give. So feel free to reach out. We're always happy to chat more. I would just add that we're excited to meet everybody. Yeah. By Zoom. 
We, yeah, we've missed we've missed meeting people this year, so I'm excited to meet everybody. I just did a, a block of emerge, and after the first couple of days, I realized there's not very many people here, and there's kind of the missing elective student, which was a big thing to miss because I always enjoy meeting people and talking about the program and. I don't know, learning about people. So that's one of the things that we definitely miss, but we'll try and make that up with our CARMS programming for the for the upcoming year. I know there's a lot of concern about how do you match at a program that you didn't do an elective at. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get the privilege to do an elective here at McMaster when I was in medical school, but I learned from the interactions that I had with residents and discussions with the administrative and executive staff here about the program, about how wonderful it was, how collegial, how well, it would train me to become an emergency medicine doctor. Um, and it's just a wonderful fit for me. And that's why I chose to come to master for residency. And just to show you that you can match without doing an elective here. And even this year, it'll be even more of an equal playing field for everyone. So please don't be discouraged by that fact. And just put your best foot forward and we'll see what happens. Yeah, just, just to assure everyone, so you can hear it from, from me as well, uh, we uh, do not and have never required a, an elective at McMaster for us to consider you for an interview or to rank you up. So it, that, is, that has never been something that we've worked for. Yeah, those are great points. I definitely get some of those questions from people. So thanks for answering that up front. So unless anyone has anything else they'd like to add, I think that's all the questions I have for you. We'll put some of the contact information in the show notes as well for the podcast, but you can also check out the website, the MacEmerge website, which we'll also link. It's macemerge.ca. Thank you, Aleem, Kelly, and Frank for coming by the podcast for this month. Uh, I really appreciate the time that we had and all the questions that we got to, to hear some great answers to. And I think this will be very reassuring for people and gives people a great sense of what the program's like if, if they haven't had a chance to come in and uh, check us out. So thank you for doing that. Thanks for having us, Spencer. Thanks for having us, Spencer. Have a good day. Thank you. Are you tired of boring teaching? Do you feel like your on-shift teaching is just the same thing, rinse and repeat over and over again? Do your teaching evaluations look like photocopies of each other? Well, we have a segment for you. Welcome to Teaching That Counts. Hey everyone, welcome back for another episode of Teaching That Counts. We're super excited to be doing this month's edition as a millennial edition where we're gonna be focusing on foam med resources. All right, so yeah. FOMED might be familiar to some, but not to all. So Aline, can you define what FOMED is? Yeah, I think I went to a FOMED party in, uh, in med school one time. It was <laughs> awesome. It was on a beach and yeah. So FOMED uh, is basically free open access medical education. So it's resources that are available without a paywall. It's a community mainly of volunteers and passionate educators who bring some great tips straight to us educators. And uh, we're going to talk about how we can use it at the bedside. So Teresa, how do you really integrate this on shift with a learner? Yeah, so as one of the people who has devoted some of her uh, time and sweat equity into FOMED. Thank you for featuring us. Uh, but also, I mean, my first tip is to curate a library of stuff that you've 
vetted before. It's kind of like, I guess back in the day, you might have had your own folder of ECGs or like write-ups or papers in your bag that you kept. Now you can have a digital version of that, right? So in Evernote, some people use that or Google Docs or, or just the internet if you know how to search something or bookmarks, right? Um, and so on your smartphone, you can have a whole bunch of lists of links and things like that. Or Michelle Lynn made a whole website called Academic Life and Emergency Medicine because she was tired of having no place to store all of her handouts, right? And so the idea is like there are these repositories that you can build up over time and to curate that library of things that you find you're using time and time again. So we talked about teaching scripts before, but the idea is this is take it to a new level. You're not just scripting yourself. You're now accruing a library of resources that you can send to people just in time when they need it, which is pretty amazing. On-demand education, you're like a Netflix teacher, right? Um, and it's pretty awesome because there's a couple of reasons why you as a teacher will find it useful. Number one, it decreases your cognitive load. You don't have to go fishing around. There are going to be like 15 to 20 things that you keep like, you're like, if I have to teach someone this concept again, I'm going to lose it. And when you're, when you're at that level, you should either find the blog post that says what you were going to say or write the blog post and send it to me yeah. and I'll post it so you can refer to it forever and ever. And the reason why I did that actually as part of a project. So Tassine Khan, who's a family medicine resident now and um, taken over by Megan Chu, who's one of our med students, has been working on a series through Kinidium that's really about like what we call the soft skills or intrinsic skills um, for emergency medicine. So they actually did a needs assessment, really nerdy wrote a paper up and then and then like carved out all these things that we don't always teach our clerks um, and so it's meant for junior learners and to pull back the curtain to show them how things are done and so an example of that would be like what does reassessment mean like when you come on shift and like you've seen your patient okay so have you reassessed your patient they're like yes and I'm like okay great and I asked them all these questions like oh well I haven't seen the patient yet. oh I haven't done this yet Oh, I didn't check the lab yet. I'm like, okay, all right, <laughs> let's, let's reframe that. And so um, in this series, Tassine found a really nice med student at the time and now a uh, PGY2 resident, because uh, this has been a while ago that we started the project. Um, and uh, Arthur Welsher is in, was a med student here and now is at U of T. And, and he's written a blog post on the Canadian called The Rules of Patient Reassessments. And he created a little mnemonic to help people. You know how we love mnemonics on this show. And so the idea idea is the rules of a reassessment are R-U-L-E-S. So we interview unstable patients, spot them, and then, you know, sound the alarm. Check the labs in radiology, endpoint. Uh, so like, what's the goal? Are you, endpoint is to admit them, endpoint is to ICU, endpoint is to outpatient follow-up, like whatever the endpoint is. And then like, ask the patient what they're scared about because the worst is when you've got a trainee who didn't ask that question and then you're the attendant that thinks everything is fine and then you're coming to discharge someone and they're like, oh, by the way, doctor, and we've all had that happen to ourselves, but it's even better if you can get the learners to ask about that. So is there anything else to worry about that I can go ask the attending right now? And then that way you can walk in and be a bit of the hero, but also just so that you're prepared to handle any of those questions that you haven't dealt with yet. And so he wrote that blog, blog post, so I never have to say this again. And so this is the way it works. Okay, so imagine yourself in the eMERGE, a learner comes up to you, and you're like, do you know what reassessment means? And they're like, no, no idea. What is a reassessment? Okay, so then I sit down at the computer. I type in Welsher rules reassessment <laughs> into Canadium.org search bar. I pull up the post. I say, okay, grab a seat, read this post. It'll take you three minutes. And then we're going to talk about what to do next. 
And undoubtedly, I have never had to explain because after they read the post, Arthur did such a great job, actually, that they're, um, they're, I'm like, what do you do? You have any questions? They're like, no, I got to go talk to the patient. I'm like, great. <laughs> and then they come in and they've done all the stuff and then they present the case to you again. And it's wonderful because now there's this little piece of thing that I don't have to repeat. And I have this part of my library. So there are other things you can go explore Canadian for all the other kind of like skill sets. Like we've done consultation skills, like we talked about last time and other things like that. But definitely having a curated list of high yield blog posts, podcasts and resources that are at your fingertips really important. And that sounds like it's a lot of work to do, but once you actually do that work and have it, um, then it's actually super helpful because I love it as a just-in-time resource for my learners. And so it's really effective for those moments on shift where you're trying to teach a concept and you're like, I actually need something that they can read and work on. And then they can kind of come to me with questions and we can discuss it a little bit further. I find that some of the other just-in-time resources that people are using, like sometimes you'll have clerks who come up with like an up-to-date article, right? And those take like 15, 20 minutes to read or journal articles. Like those are quite heavy and usually a deep dive. A lot of the foam med resources are much more effective as like an overview on a topic. So it helps prime and orient the learner to what are kind of the key concepts there. It's usually written in a very easy to read or visually appealing format, usually integrating things like infographics or, or mixing in kind of cases. Um, and it often has things like mnemonics or memory aids. And you can often find blog posts that are actually targeted at, at different levels of learners as well, right? And so something that's written for clerks is a perfect example of something that you can pull up if you have a med student with you. So if you have a senior resident, then this is where I will take that content and give it to them and say, this is what I use to teach the clerks. And so they can use it more from an educational frame. It might not be enough of detail for those senior learners, but it's a great way to share the resources that you're using and building their educational capacity. So this is awesome for the TLDR audience, right? Where they really can't slog through a giant article. This is effective when it's a time in the department where it's a little bit busy and you need to run off and do some of your own reassessments or discharges. And so it, it allows you to utilize that time really effectively um, and help ground the learner in those moments. So um, I think it's absolutely important to have that curated library, like you mentioned, Teresa, and then to use them at the bedside um, in the manner that you've described, give it to the learner, allow them to kind of digest the information and then check back for understanding. Yeah, and, and that's something we did as a research project uh, with Catherine Potoka. She's the program director at Calgary now. And so we actually asked a whole bunch of different people um, how they use point-of-care resources. And this is this is definitely very much based on what it is. So a lot of people, when they're junior, they're deep diving. So they're spending time reading the articles and doing that stuff. And that's great if you have a bed block situation or multiple learners where they're waiting to review with you. Uh, then you can definitely tell someone to read the original Ottawa Anchor Rules paper by Ian, right? Like you're going to be like, Dr. Steele wrote this. You need to know it. We're going to review that case. Read this while I review and see these other three patients. That totally is legit. And they can have that time to do that because, you know, like you've got other things to do as well. And so having them multitask doing that while you run off and reassess someone, intubate someone, and then come back and review the ankle case with them is definitely okay, right? The next thing would be that as you get more senior, you're starting to read around the cases. And this is what you're talking about, like the infographic, you're using it as an aid to memoir. You're, remember, you're, you're saying, I can't really remember the nuances. Let me pull up the infographic. And those are the point of care resources that are really flashy, and very quick. Um, and like you said, an overview sometimes is good if they have no semblance of how to approach something. And so ClipCast or 
or EM basic would be good resources that you want to look at because they're very basic content. That's like, here's the history questions you should ask in the room. And you're like, fantastic. Or like a Canadian frontline primer also is built for that. And so the idea would be that you can like do that refresher for them. Um, and then I think after that, then people are starting to use them to teach uh, around the cases. And so mid junior residents might be starting to use the resources to teach the patients. Right. They're trying to find resources that they can then use point of care resources to educate. And so it might be that you pull up the Alien Canadian PCARN head rules and use that as a teaching infographic to go through with a parent and a child why the you know why they don't need a CAT scan. Right. Um, and so those are good. And then the next thing after that would be as you get more senior, you're using these resources to teach in general. Right. And so I think that that algorithm and understanding how it all fits together is really important. And one point of emphasis that I always have in this area is that, you know, I often get the response from learners that everything's available on the internet. And so we're no longer teaching people to memorize every detail, but it is important that we have some type of organizational around how we're going to access that information is just in time. Like I can't tell you the number of times, and I'm sure we've had similar experiences where you're like, okay, we're going to, we have a PEA arrest. It's five minutes out. Let's go through the ACLS algorithm. And people go into Google and type in like ACLS. And you're like, okay, we can't just go to like Wikipedia or what the first link is. You should have some type of uh, bank that you're already going to create as you're studying that is available on your smart device or available on paper, however you're going to kind of do your format. But then you can actually use that in the moment. Um, and that you've already vetted that. Because I think one of the challenges with this is critical appraisal. So Teresa, how do we tell what we find online is good? Like, especially in this era of, you know, you can't trust everything that you, re you read on Twitter, right? So how do we really know what's a good resource that we should be giving yeah, to our I'm, learners? I sound like such a nerd because we're hitting all my research pro programs right <laughs> now. <laughs> but I honestly have done research, quite a bit of research with Brett Toma as kind of like the, uh, I guess he's the Batman maybe to my Robin. I don't know. Maybe I'm his Alfred. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, I... I would say that we've been doing a lot of work on this. And actually on Canadian, there is a blog post by Daniel Ting, and he helps spearhead a systematic review, a rapid systematic review. So we time restricted to about five years and uh, to understand what are some tools that we can use for critical appraisal. And so we rated all of the stuff and came to some conclusions about techniques that you can use to rate FOMED. And so this is not something that you should be doing necessarily at the bedside, just like a JAMA article, you're not going to whip out a JAMA article, critically appraise it in real time, and then apply it to your practice, right? Usually that kind of reading, especially in our discipline, because of how reactive we need to be, we're usually doing that stuff in the safety of Journal Club or in your podcast on the way in. You're listening to the stuff, you're digesting it, you're making a decision and deciding whether or not you're going to incorporate your practice. I think FOMED probably needs to have a similar arc to it as to where it's placed. But I think that when you're building that library, that's when you're going to curate some of this stuff. And so in the blog post, we kind of like talk about a bunch of different techniques. There's honestly like... There's no right answer to it, but we've tried to do a kick at the can at answering this. So there's something called the revised metric score. The metric score was derived in 2017 by my team. And then it basically wasn't perfect. So we revised it already once. And so that paper has been published. It's on the website and I'll link to it. But generally speaking, it kind of takes you through three kind of like three kind of areas, content, credibility, and review. And so the idea would be, you know, does, does the content provide enough background? Uh, it, does the resource have enough, you know, information in it? Is it appropriate length? Is it too long, too, too, 
too short, is the resource well-written and formatted so that people can get through it. So that's in the content. Their credibility part is, uh, does it cite the resources and reference and hopefully link out to them, that'd be optimal. And is it clear who created the resource or are they like, you know, does it even say what if they have conflicts of interest? Because that's going to be a huge kind of emergent field is the conflicts of interest that are embedded within FOMED. Because like you never know if someone's being sponsored by, you know, big pharma or a device company. right? And then the last part is review, right? So the review is that are there editorial and pre or post publication peer review processes so that you know that the content is up to date and rigorous and, and is, is subject and responsive, right? So, you know, in Canadian, we get push notifications when someone said, hey, you're wrong on this. Maybe it's because it was wrong to begin with. Maybe it's a typo. Maybe it's just that there's a new rock star study that changed, changed the world, right? Or some of our sepsis stuff became very obsolete because, you know, when a rise and promise came along, <laughs> you know, like we just changed the way we dealt with sepsis. So guess what? We, uh, we changed our content and we, you know, thanks to people that notified us and we were a little like uh, addendum to thank them and then also change, t- said which day we revised it so that then now that post can be cycled upon in five years time when another rock star study comes along and changes our practice again, right? And so the idea would be those are kind of some domains that you can think of when you're thinking through everything, but they're pretty common sense, right? Like they're not things that are like rocket science. I do think that finding out who wrote the piece can actually be surprisingly hard. And it's actually not that easy uh, on some blogs. And so that's, you know, a call to arms to the bloggers that are listening. But it's also the fact that uh, with other content, sometimes you don't know if they had an editorial process. Like obviously if there's an editor to the blog, we infer that there probably is some sort of editorial process. The best obviously would be if they actually had a post about how they edited the content and what the workflow is but that's like in like one percent of top 100 blogs so for sure it's like i think we're moving towards a little bit more rigorous reporting of some of this stuff right and i think that'll be a game changer when we do but until that time the idea of uh, being an educator that vets some of this stuff and then triangulates against what you already know that's actually really important so there's actually another score called the air score which is by the alien uh, group and so michelle and a bunch of other michelle lynn and other educators actually put that score together and it's similar domains so i won't bore you with the details but the idea is that it's it adds in a layer of educational gestalt so you as an educator can vet the materials with your expertise, right? Like you have training, you have expertise. So does this blog post make sense? Is it up to date? Is it credible in that way, right? And so they could have all the citations in the world, but again, if they're still trying to push early goal directed therapy on me, I might be like, Mm-mm, you know, probably not the best piece to give to the med student, even though it might be an approachable blog post. I know that other studies have come along to change the way we do business here. So I'm not gonna, I'm gonna skip over that one, right? And so these are the kind of things that I think you need to think about. And I think that's one of the skills that we need to develop in our new trainees. And that's something that we've shifted the focus to in clerkship as well, that the CDR rules presentations, uh, we specifically focus on how do you appraise literature? And we've really started to focus in on how do you appraise internet-based resources like FOMED resources. Um, And as part of that as well, our clerks are actually creating their own content, which has been downright fantastic. Um, We've had some amazing videos, uh, some podcasts, some infographics that kind of look at some of the most 
common clinical decision rules that we use in emergency medicine. Um, we've highlighted some of the past award winners uh, here on the podcast before. Um, and we actually have a new page that's coming up where those that have been highly created content, we're going to create a short list of those and we'll have the page available to you as well um, as just-in-time resources on some of the most common CDR rules that you're already using at the bedside. And so that's been one of the projects uh, that we've been working on locally in the clerkship. And we'd love your involvement in that if you want to help us with reviewing the submissions every block from the medical students. And then you can get your hand at practicing how to appraise this literature yourself uh, so that you can feel like you're, uh, you're up to date on it at the same time. All right. Well, that's a great initiative, Raleem. And I, I would say that uh, it's been really cool to see the morph of that section of the curriculum. So congratulations to you and congratulations to all the clerks that you're going to make famous when <laughs> they get all of their stuff done. And so, yeah, I mean, if you're a learner listening, definitely we'd love your help as well. If you're a resident, you could rate these as well as any other faculty. So, you know, just uh, give Aleem a shout. <laughs> yeah. All right. Sure. So I think that that's like probably a really good summary of the things that I like to do. Oh, there's one more thing actually I thought uh, thought of it's called the digital scavenger hunt and so sometimes especially if you have multiple learners which may not be the case in the community shops admittedly but maybe your other colleagues are overlapping with you and you all are pondering what is the answer to this question um, then I actually suggest that everyone get out their phone and we all race to the answer right so sometimes um, I'll do this because I'm role modeling my process and so um, it's, it's just more of a gamified fun way to do it because um, if you're like, hey, how did you look that up? That's like super intrusive and people think it's accusatory. Whereas like, okay, I'm going to race you to the answer for what dose of epi we need to give a kid if they were to come in in cardiac arrest right now and their Braslow was this, right? And so it might not be that you know that yet, but that it's, it's just a fun way to get to know whether or not in a crunch time situation, how would they get that information? And so like a junior learner often will fumble, they'll go to Google, and then we can talk about that, right? A senior resident might pull out an app, uh, and then I might kind of say, well, did you vet the app? Like, do you know this is a kid's life on, on the line? Could, could you, you know, so it's like dry runs to find stuff, right? And so, for instance, I then show them I bought PD stat. I really like PD stat. I've checked the calculations. I do random stuff like in a simulated case to just make sure I've triangulated against asking the right questions of my peds and merge colleagues and ask them, hey, like, is this right? You know, and uh, and and then I know that I can trust the app. And so I talk a little bit about that preparation you do in that critical appraisal part, so that in a crash and burn situation, and I'm super anxious. There's all that emotion swirling. I know I can trust this app because I vetted it somewhere else another time when I was like cognitively okay and not like emotionally train wrecked because I'm trying to resuscitate a child. Right. And so I do that as a simulation uh, at the bedside. It's kind of a fun game, but it has a take home point. Right. So it's like a serious game. I'm going to race the um, trainees uh, to the answer so that I can have a great conversation with them about how they got to the answer and then compare and contrast. I don't do this with every trainee. I, I probably do this a little bit more for the trainees who do acute care medicine, like my PMR trainees that come through, probably they don't, they have time, right? They, they have a very different uh, specialty that they're gonna go back to, same thing with radiology. 
Um, but at the same time, I think it's cool to see how they got to the answer because then we can talk about, oh, if that's how you got to the answer, here's a couple of other hacks. Here's how I add the McMaster library to my Google Scholar search so I can find the papers really quickly and they're like mind blown, right? <laughs> so these are, the, these are the moments where you can actually kind of help them up their game with their retrieval because you're right, you don't have to memorize everything. There are some things that you should be able to retrieve really quickly though. And so for those, I kind of use a simulated activity to kind of talk through different scenarios. Yeah, that's a really good point. So it sounds like we need to spend that time, curate that library. We need to use the resources at the bedside. And we've talked about a couple of different ways that we can do that from gamification to self-reading. We need to critically appraise our resources to make sure that they're useful and applicable and valid for our context. Uh, and then we need to uh, simulate, we need to practice, and we need to use these um, in environments before we're pulling them out uh, for the first time in crises. So that's our, uh, that's our episode for today, everyone. Uh, hopefully we'll see you all around the FOMED world and, uh, and we'll see you using it at the bedside uh, a little bit more often now. All right, check you guys later. Bye. That's all we have for this month's Teaching That Counts. Tune in next month when we go through another teaching pearl to up your game. Special shout out to Krista Dauhos, one of our family medicine residents who's played an integral part in making all these lovely infographics that we'll have for you in the show notes. And thanks to John Sherbineau for his mentorship. See you next time. That's all for this month's episode. Thanks for listening. We had a great chat with Drs. Aleem Pardan, Kelly Mandeepin, and Frank Battaglia about the MacEmerge program and some of the highlights for the upcoming CARMS applicants. And then we heard from Drs. Teresa Chan and Aleem Naji about the ins and outs of FOMED. Thanks for listening and stay safe out there. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out!